0: you believe that. Just dumb luck, right? Uh, if you've not been here for a while, uh, or, or been, ever been here, or not been here and heard me say this, there is no such thing as luck, because we serve a sovereign God, and uh, luck doesn't uh, factor into creation. We might think it is, but it's not for Him. So thankful for that, and um, <clears throat> thankful this morning, and uh, as I like to say, Happy Resurrection Day, um, because I think it more clearly it describes what this is all about, especially for those who may not know what what we call Easter is about. What in the world does Easter mean? I mean, Easter. Yeah, you ask people what Easter means, and, and if they don't know, they're going to tell you, well, it's about new life and spring and bunnies and eggs and all that kind of stuff. But if you say, what's Resurrection Day to anyone... They're going to know what that is, right? So I'm just, I'm just run, swimming against the grain going to say happy Resurrection Day and continue to do that and those of who' have been around here know that that's, uh, I enjoy doing that not to make people mad, but just so we're clear. all right Well in the province of God as well, I'm, I'm just uh, this is we were on the way here this morning and my daughter asked me, are you going to spe- speak, preach a special message on the resurrection today? And I knew what she was asking. Am I going to go outside of where we normally been? Which we're in this series on the book of Acts. And I said no. And not to be a jerk. And not to ignore that this is is resurrection day. The day we set aside to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ specifically. But guess what? In the providence and the dumb luck that we might have before us, right? The passage is about the resurrection. How about that? We didn't plan that. In fact, last week I thought I was going to do all of chapter 17, and and about halfway through the week I knew there was no way I could, so I just cut it off. Not because of this, but just I knew I couldn't do it. So here we are in Acts 17 in this series on uh, uh, the book of Acts, which we are entitling Missio Dei, the mission of God. And this morning we're going to be covering Acts chapter 17, so if you turn there, Acts 17... 16 through 34 through the rest of Acts 17 and the title of the message this morning is when to preach the resurrection when to preach the resurrection and with that said and as you have your bibles in front of you let me pray and ask god to uh, uh, make his word come alive for us this morning lord we do pray uh, that you would do what only you can do and that is to make our hearts and minds Uh, come alive to your word to understand it to be able to apply it lord to get past our um, inability in and of ourselves to embrace your word lord we pray that you would uh, do what you promise that you by the power of god the holy spirit would in in awaken our minds and our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning in jesus name amen well, there's been a discussion taking place in uh, the Christian community for a long time, probably, um, since the beginning of the gospel, since Jesus rose from dead, probably even from these day, the days of Acts, and I'm sure that that's the case. But in recent years it's gained more attention. And that discussion is concerning the contextualization of the gospel. are not you glad you came this morning? The contextualization of the gospel is very hot among um, uh, evangelicals talking about the contextualization of the gospel. So what in the world does that mean? Well, if an old football player can understand it, you can too. Alright, so in general, it's speaking about of the understanding of context, the context you find yourself in when presenting the gospel to people. So, so understanding a person's background, understanding uh, their family background, understanding what country they may have come from, understanding m- any kind of religious upbringing they have, understanding their education, just understanding who it is that you're speaking to. Just trying to get a feel for where they are and and, and what they understand, and um, and I would say that those things are very helpful in presenting the gospel to a person. We can't ignore that. All right, if somebody tells you an, you're, you're, they're, they're an atheist, you t- don't talk; you, t- you don't start at the same place as someone who says that they're Jewish. You just don't start at the same place. You, you you listen, you try to understand where they're coming from, so you can get the truth to them. Now, we've already seen in Acts. Um, Uh, Paul is wise when he approaches different groups of people we've already seen that happen that he understands there's different contexts. He understands when he's speaking to Jews that he he can begin his presentation of the gospel at a certain place with their understanding of things that, that that he shares with them. He also is, when he speaks to Gentiles, he understands he's speaking to Gentiles who don't have a background of the Old Testament. They haven't read the Old Testament. They haven't memorized the, the Pentateuch. They haven't re- memorized uh, the Lord our God is one, the Shema that the Jews would know. So he has to start in a different place to get them up to speed. So he, he ta- he's always careful about that. So in a general sense, understanding the context when sharing the gospel is a very good thing and I would encourage you to understand the context. All right? However, some people have taken contextualization to a whole new level and it's not a good thing. Some would say that when you're speaking to a certain type of person or people, you should leave out certain parts of the gospel because you might offend them. Or you might insult their intelligence. Or that you might make them feel uncomfortable. Heaven forbid that we would do any of those things. That's awful. Just so just don't, if you think anything's going to happen, just leave that part of the gospel out. And just tell them, God loves you and have, he has a wonderful plan in your life. Go and be warmed and be filled. Amen amen that's right yeah and 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 with that we've left out the gospel this is when listen contextualization becomes compromise let me say it again that is when contextualization becomes compromise this is when contextualization leads you to not actually sharing the gospel at all And we're going to see that in our passage this morning. One of the key elements of sharing the gospel is presenting the truth of the resurrection. Some would say that stressing the resurrection is an insult to people's intelligence because you're asking them to believe the supernatural. So it's insulting to some people because they're too too smart to believe that things can happen outside of things that we can actually observe and repeat, science, right? And they're too smart for that. So to say someone rose from the dead, conquered death, how insulting to their intelligence. Well, here's what I encourage you to do. Insult right away. Not on purpose, but don't leave out the resurrection. Because in doing that, you leave out the gospel. Without the the resurrection, there is no gospel. And I'm gonna, and and again, the promise of God. Jared chose to read First Corinthians 15:12 through 12 through the following. I'm gonna read it again for you. Alright, so here's Paul, what he would say about the resurrection. If you don't have your Bibles turned to there, I will have it here for you. Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. If there's no resurrection, why in the world are we even here? Because at Grace Bible Church, we, 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 we focus on the preaching and the explanation of the Word of God. And this saying that there's no resurrection. We're wasting our time. Now, some of you may think I'm wasting my time anyway, but that's okay. All right? But that's what we say for sure. All just right? keep keep going. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If, in fact, that they are, that the dead are not raised. We're, we're calling God a liar. We're, we're testifying as God. He wasn't really raised. And in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins, then those also, also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Let me ask you a question. What does the word gospel mean? good news. Now let me just ask you a question. If the gospel includes no forgiveness of sin, is that good news? Because that's the issue, isn't it? We're separated from a holy God because of our sin, and if there's no resurrection, there's no forgiveness of sin, Paul says. And it's all over the scripture. So it's not good news. It's terrible news. It's awful news. If Christ has not been raised, the resurrection is essential to the gospel And we must include it always in our presentation of the gospel. So, when are we to preach the gospel? When are we to preach the gospel? When it may offend? When it may insult someone's intelligence? When it may make someone feel uncomfortable? And here's my answer, yes. In all those cases and every other case, yes, we're to preach the resurrection. In every context in which we find ourselves, we are to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we study this passage this morning, we will see that Paul does this very thing. Preach the resurrection in a context where many would say it would be best if he left it out. He may lose his audience. if He brings up this whole resurrection thing. Alright, so we're going to look at this, uh, just turn your attention now to Acts 17, and we're going to walk down through these verses, I'm going to explain what's going on, just to be honest with you, I am rushing through this text this morning, this is probably like a four-part series, seriously, there is some unbelievable stuff here, we could just spend tons of time dwelling on, but we're not going to do that, uh, so we can get through the book of Acts, and also that we can get to the into the story of Acts 17 as well. But I'm going to walk down through here, explain some things out, point some things out, come back at the end, and then encourage us by God's grace to put some of these truths to practice. So Paul, if, if you want to I'll catch us up here, Paul is on his second missionary journey and has just visited Thessalonica and Berea. And the Thessalonians ran, Thessalonians ran him out of town. Um, for what he had to preach. And he went to Berea, and he found that the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, verse 11, because they examined the Scriptures daily to see what Paul had to say was true. And we want to be Bereans. We want to examine God's Word daily to make sure that we're not being uh, uh, duped or not being deceived uh, by things that are not true. And guess what? The Thessalonians Thessalonians heard that uh, things were going well there. So this whole group of Jews that didn't like him came to Berea and, and agitated, remember last week? They, they agitated, like your washer agitates clothes. They agitated the crowds. And so it wasn't safe for Paul. So the brothers in uh, Berea said, Paul, we've got to get you out of here. So they send him with some escorts to Athens, and, uh, um, which is about 200 miles away. So let me bring up our map again, and I'll start on this side, just because I started on the other side last week. So, whoops, go back, there we go. My pointer. Okay, here we go. Berea, or actually, Thessalonica is right here. Then Berea, then he goes 200 miles away to Athens. All right, so that's where they they send him to with an escort. We don't know how many guys, but he goes from Thessalonica to Berea down to Athens. Okay, and that's where we find Paul in our passage today. And once he arrived in Athens, he his escorts left him with a command that Paul sent with them. Tell Silas and Timothy to get here as soon as they can. And when they actually don't get there, uh, when he's in Athens, it's not until he goes to Corinth that they finally catch up with him. Uh, but th- th- that's, that's what happens. And um, when he arrived in Athens, it, it was no longer the political seat or most powerful seat of the region Corinth was. Now, 400 years before that it was, in its heyday, no doubt. And in its heyday, this was a city of the famed Socrates, his student Plato, and, his, and Plato's student Aristotle. How many of you all heard those names? If you taken any kind of philosophy? And the four of us have heard that. Great. Um, so, well, do we need to explain who those guys are. They were the great philosophers of the day. And not only of the day, still philosophy. Much, if you take a philosophy class today, you will read more about them than any modern uh, philosopher. Because everything the modern philosophers uh, speak about they really pull from these guys uh, there's also uh, um, it, it was also the home of a guy named Epicurus which we get Epicureanism and Zeno who started what's called the Stoics or Stoicism so all kinds of philosophy these were the, the eggheads of the world these are the the guys who thought through everything and they, and explained away everything and they just thought and thought and thought and thought and, and, and there's some good things that came out of that no doubt uh, they, there There's some basic ideas of philosophy, how do you think logically, that were very good that came from that. But they basically decided to explain away the need, the need for God. It was a reaction to atheism and the reaction um, to, to, to violent atheism and the re- reaction to that there was a God. Just, they just began to try to think everything out. All right? So. But although this was not in the heyday of Athens, Athens was still considered the philosophical center of the world and still held one of the major universities in all the world at the time. So it was still very much respected, not because it was so big and powerful and, and politically powerful, but it was because this was the think tank still happened here at Athens when Paul shows up. So let's pick up there in verse 16, finally. All right. Now while Paul was waiting for them, speaking of Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was uh, observing the city full of idols. Paul, of course, not one for standing around ever and doing nothing, he begins to walk around the city and he sees the, the, the Parthenon and he sees all these huge buildings and, and he begins to notice all these things dedicated to all these gods and different altars and, and statues and those kind of things. He begins to, to look at this and, and, and it says it provoked him and the words actually had angered him. He was angered as he looked around all this false worship of false gods. It bothered him to his core. And it's not surprising since one historian uh, wrote of this, it was easier to find a God in Athens than a person. Now let me give you some background on that. Because it's been said there were 30,000 gods in Athens and this time only 10,000 people. So I would agree it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a person. And so Paul had to do something about this. He couldn't stand it. It just bothered him. And rightfully so. Look at verse 17. We'll read down through verse 18. So he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day and with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Well, Paul first went to the synagogue, right? That's what Paul normally did in keeping with his practice. He took the gospel to the Jews first because Jesus said to take it to the Jews first. So it's what Paul does. If there's a synagogue, he went to the synagogue. If there wasn't a synagogue, then he went where the Jews were gathered. And we saw that already earlier in Acts as well. But was gathered with the, not only the, the, the Jews, but also Gentile converts, those who had decided to worship Yahweh as the one true God. And he gathers with them on the Sabbath. Now, during the other days of the week, uh, he went to the marketplace to talk about the gospel with the rest of the community. Just general people that are out there in the marketplace he goes to them to talk to them about the gospel. Now while in the marketplace he began to engage some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and present the gospel to them. So let's, let's think, just, I want to just give you a background, we're not going to do a whole study in philosophy, but it's important for us to know what in general these people believed. The Epicureans they, that pleasure was the goal of their life eat, drink be merry for tomorrow we die And that's how they lived. Whatever would bring pleasure and would stay away from pain, and they would have been big into morphine. I'm sure. All right. Once it came into the end of their life, they knew what morphine is. Give me the morphine because our life is about pleasure and not pain. And that was what they lived for was pleasure. And and they didn't deny the existence of gods. Outright, practically they did because of the way they lived their life. They were practical atheists, but they believed that those gods didn't interfere with the affairs of men. They were just distant, um, and they did not. And they thought there was no afterlife. When you died, you died, and it was it. You just disintegrated, and boom, gone. All right. Well, the Stoics they were pantheists. They believed that everything is God. This chair is God, you are God, the wall is God, the light is God, whatever, everything is God, and that he doesn't exist as a separate entity. We just all, everything makes up God, but he's he's in the rocks, the trees, you just name it. They live with apathy and detachment from the things of the world. That's the way that they lived. So it's important, and I'm not going to give you a quiz on what they they believed, we're going to review it as we walk down through here, but it's important to know what they believed because Paul knew what they believed. And as he approaches them, he starts where they might start, in this whole thing, an idea of God and, 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 and the gospel. So notice what, what they were saying about Paul in verse 18. What would this idle babbler wish to say? Now when we see that idle babbler, and you think of somebody just that's what doing. It sounds like when we used to drive up, now that's a lot better. you used to drive up to, a, a, uh, to order, right? And the drive through that's what it sounded like. Now it's a lot better. Technology has got a lot better, right? Um, most of the time. Uh, but uh, th- that's not what this means at all. It's actually literally mean a seed picker. Speaking of a bird, they go around and pick up just random seeds that were on the ground. This is funny. Yesterday, uh, we were... Jonathan outside cleaning out the garage. We are in the driveway, and, and we had Hunley, our little dog. He was on his leash there in the front yard. We put him out there. He's running around. And we pulled out his dog food from the garage, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to get this, and I throw it out there to Huntley. Well, he looked like a little seed picker. He looked hunting around trying to find those the, the, the different little pieces of food. It was kind of funny. And, uh, um, but that's kind of what this is. And, and what they basically, it came, th- this, this word, seed picker, didn't really refer to birds anymore, but in this context... It was an insult. It's somebody who gathers different ideas from different people, puts them all together, and say, well, here's something new. And they were accusing Paul of, this is so new, we know you just kind of picked it from everybody else. You've put put a little spin on it, and now you've got your own philosophy trying to impress us. So it's an insult. He's a seed picker. He really didn't have anything new. He's just borrowing from everybody else. Well, others said he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, it seems the way this is written that they thought Paul was just adding to their collection of gods. One god was named Jesus, and the other god he was talking about was named Resurrection. There's just some other gods. We just add them to the collection. So now we have 30,002 gods in Athens that's your that's thought neither one of these were positive but think about this they of course misunderstood that but I want you to notice that the summary of what he was preaching in the sophisticated philosophical place was Jesus and the resurrection if that's all they got about what he was preaching he had been there we, we, we don't know how long for days at least before he, this, this specific thing happens we're getting ready to read about but they got that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, even though they misunderstood it completely. They got that. And oh, that when people hear us present the gospel, when we talk to people about the gospel, that if all they would get was Jesus and the resurrection, praise God. Even if they misunderstand it. At least they got what the heart of it was all about. Jesus and the resurrection. He didn't shy away from this truth for fear of offending them. He didn't shy away. He might insult them. He didn't shy away away because he started to feel uncomfortable. He didn't shy away because he started to feel uncomfortable. He preached, proclaimed the resurrection because without it, these people, as is with all people, had no hope to be delivered from the wages of their sin. He understood. Without it, there was no gospel at all. So notice what happens. Uh, beginning again in verse tw- beginning in verse 19, we'll read down through verse 21, and they took him and brought him <coughs> to the air. Aropo- uh, 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 the there we go. Aropagus, there we go. Saying, "May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean." Now Luke adds here. He just kind of. A, He's, he's saying, I'll, I'll tell you why they're saying this. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Well, that word that I couldn't pronounce, because I've heard it pronounced three different ways, but uh, uh, is most people pronounce it that way, it's a, it's a court named after the hill it once met on. Now, if you go there right now in Athens, they'll take you to a place that they say was Mars Hill. And, and there was a, a place a place called Mars, Mars Hill is Arachavus. It was called that. But more importantly, it was a court, a gathering of, of, of the, the city officials who were also philosophers who made judgments on philosophy and judgments in the city. So the thought here is that they, they had long quit using that hill to meet on. They were now meeting in, in, in more of a building area where all these gods were surrounding, all these idols. Right, so get that picture, so often we think Mars Hill he was standing on a hill, there's not real great proof that that was actually happening uh, that he was back at the old Mars Hill or, their, or, or the place called uh, the Eropocos but he was with the, the court called the Eropocos and these philosophers so Luke tells us he lets us know that their motives were not to hear the gospel, that's verse 21 because they just got like oh, we got a new guy in town let's bring him in and listen to what he has to say there might, we might learn something new and we can be seed peckers too, right? And we can get something new from that and we can share and make it sound a lot smarter. So their, their motive was not because they wanted to hear the gospel where they were being convicted. It was just kind of what they did. And Paul was so demanding, I'm sure, or commanding in his, not his presence, but in what he had to say that he was worth listening to, taking him to the authorities here. So what will Paul say in the midst of those who were seen to be the most highly educated people of the day? Well, what would he say? Well, thankfully Luke lets us know. Look verse 22. <clears throat> so Paul stood in the midst of the Oropocos and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Paul begins by meeting these people where they were and pointing them to something that was true about all people. He sees that they were very religious and that they understood there was something or someone outside of themselves greater than them. He looked around, there's 30,000 gods. He's looking around and these these people at least understand that they're they're not the end of it all. They're looking for something. There's a, a, a natural search for something greater than themselves. So he's making a new God and a new God and a new God and a new God. They could see the evidence all around them that there was more than them. Just as the word of God proclaims in Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. They, they looked around just in creation and saw there's something beyond us. We, we can't do whatever, whatever it was or ever, who it was that did all this. And this external evidence was so convincing that it became internal what it says in Romans 1.19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. Now, there's something, Paul's saying, there's something inside of man that screams, there's something beyond me. There's something greater than me. And I love this in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has also set eternity in their heart. Speaking about men. And here, and Paul goes on in Romans 1 to say that we take this, this idea and this thought that has become internal in all people. There's something beyond me. And we suppress it. We push it back. We spend all of our time with all we have to push it away. I don't want that. I don't want there to be something greater than me. Atheists have to do this too. They have to do this. They can tell you they don't. They do. They spend all their days. So why, are they, why are atheists so mad? If there's no God, why make a big deal about it? Think about that. They spend all their time, there's no God and I hate you and you're ugly and all this kind of stuff. They get all mad and worked up and and they write all these books. Why? If there's no God, just who cares? Because they're trying to suppress something that's within them. They were created in the image of God and they can't get over it. And we can't get over it. And we suppress the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, as Paul would say. They suppress, we suppress this truth that God has placed inside of us. There is something greater. And mankind will continue to do this apart from Christ. The key here is I want us to see that Paul begins with the fact that they believe in an uncaused cause. That's philosophical. This is where it came out of. And he's talking their language. There's an uncaused cause because you have to have cause and effect. For this to happen, something else had to happen before to, to move it. And they keep thinking back, thinking back, thinking back. And you have to come to to this conclusion. There has to be an uncaused cause, the first cause. So he's speaking their language. They're thinking, whatever that is or whoever that is, that's the uncaused cause. So he's speaking just like they would think. Then Paul says, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Uh, I love this. The word ignorance is the root word for where we get the word agnostic. Not to know. Anybody familiar with Robbie Zacharias? I love Robbie Zacharias. I'm sure glad he's on our team. Because he would have taken all these philosophers and tied them in knots. Because uh, he's just brilliant. And he's using his brilliance for the glory of God, thankfully. Um, and uh, but, but he was speaking, uh, I think at Princeton one time. And he, he always presents something, takes questions and answers. And he's always so gracious, in how he answers the questions uh, with these people who think they're so smart. You know, they're Princeton. Come on! I mean, I can't even spell Princeton, let alone get in it. Now, these people who are really, really smart—they score five thousand on their SAT. They're really the brilliance of our, the brilliant people. Um, you're laughing. That took me. It would take me twenty times to do that probably. But um, they, they, he. This one young man stood up. The first thing he said was, "says I'm an agnostic." And, and this is earlier in his ministry so I'm, I'm not sure if you say this is gracious or not and this is what Robbie, Robbie Zacharias said to this guy, he said, I'm an agnostic he said, okay, so let me get this clear you're an agnostic, yes I'm an agnostic so, okay, let's just get clear, the root word for agnostic is ignoramus so what you're telling us is that you're an ignoramus, alright <laughs> and that just got the whole crew, g- g- crowd laughing it means not to know, and that's what ignorant means ignorant doesn't mean stupid so don't understand that he's not saying you're stupid he says you don't know so I'm going to tell you in your ignorance you don't know this and I'm going to tell you something about this unknown God And let me just give you a quick background of this altar to an unknown God there was lots of them because at one time in the history of Athens there was a plague that came around so they were praying out to all their who knows how many gods there were at the time let's say there were 30,000 gods at the time and none of them were working because the plague was killing so they started sacrificing then they made these altars and started sacrificing these altars hoping the plague would go away and there was lots of these altars called to the unknown God because they didn't know what his name was. But there's, there's got to be another God out there who can help us with the plague thing. So in Athens, there wasn't just one statue or one altar to an unknown God. There was many. And he points out to one, this unknown God. Here, you, you want to know who this God is? Guess what? I'm going to tell you. I want to tell you who this God is. The God that you don't know. The God that you've been trying to, you're searching for. The God that you, you know that's out there. Let me tell you who he is. And he's going to introduce him to the one true living God. All of his points are straight. Let me me make this clear. They're all, what he's going to say, every bit of it is straight from the Bible. Because this is another thing, when you contextualize, oh, you'd never use the Bible. That's circular argument. No, the Bible has an authority in its own. And we don't have to argue for the authority of the Bible. It it speaks authority. And let me just go ahead and say this. Uh, We're going to get into this in just a second. But the Bible doesn't prove the existence of God, it assumes the existence of God. And in fact, you cannot prove or disprove the existence of God scientifically. Science, you have to have what? Something that's observable and repeatable, right? If it's true science. So we, even, we talk about creation, those kind of things, and, we, and, and I think the Bible's clear on how that happened. But the only one that knows how exactly how it happened is God himself, because there was no one there to observe God, to tell him how it was supposed to go. So it's assumed. He assumes. It. And the thing is, he's written it in our heart. And he's already brought that up with the, 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 these people here that are gathered. This, 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 this conglomeration of brilliant men that were the council at Mal, uh, of Mars Hill. So look with me there, beginning in verse 24, as he begins to bring biblical truth to light. He's already brought biblical truth to light. But to kind of start back, he says in verse 24, The God who made the world and all things in it. Where's he at? What book, what book of the Bible? Genesis. Genesis. He's just going to take them through all 66 books. That's awesome. Well, not 66 books yet, but take them through all the 39 books of the Old Testament at least, okay? And maybe what the, some of the other apostles and Jesus said, some of the Gospels. So he's just going all the way back to the beginning. First thing he wants them to know about God is that he is creator. He is the creator. And he is not created by man. Woo! And they're looking around, maybe in the midst of where they're standing at the time, and there's all kinds of gods that have been created by man, all around him. Not with this God. He's the creator of all. He's creator. Then, it said, then he says, "Since he is Lord of heaven and Earth does not dwell in temples made with hands, it kind of goes together. It's insinuated too, if he's creator, then he is the Lord of heaven and Earth. He is sovereign. He rules over all. That's who God is. Whoa. Now we have to have a God for the common cold and the flu and for when my neighbor doesn't treat me right and for when that plague came last time and we have a God for this and we have a God for that and we made them all and we just kind of trying to appease them and make them do what we wanted to do. Not this God. No, not this God. Since he is Lord he is curious. He is Lord. He reigns over heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands. Not this God, because he is sovereign. He lives outside of that. Whoa, if you're an Epicurean or a Stoic at this time, you are cringing for all your worth. He's knocking down everything you believe just in these first, two, these first two sentences. There's one God, he's the creator, not someone else. He, he is outside of creation. He is not creation. Oh, no! There goes the pantheist. He's knocking everything down they believe. He's creator. Secondly, he's sovereign. Look at verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. See, they saw themselves as the giver. The giver to God. And then they would, he, they would appease him like he needed something but no the truth is that God is the ultimate giver and he has no needs he has no needs he's the giver of all things you can't give God something he doesn't that he doesn't already have he has everything he's the giver the ultimate giver Look at verse twenty-six. And he made one man every nation, of, uh, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. You just say this the way i the, 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 the summarizing this. He is purposeful. He is purposeful. Now there's a there's a, there's a. They, I wish I had this would be one of those like standalone sermons. And he made from one man, and the word "one" in Greek means what? one okay one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth really he's back in 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 Genesis again Adam who Eve and they had children and their children had children and children and children and children from one man well come on Brian you don't believe that that's a joke you kidding me science has disproved that over and over again actually it hasn't and the more they study, they realize this would actually be true. At least people who, the people, some scientists will say, even though they don't believe this, the God of the Bible, they say, yeah, we believe that because science bears it out. Others will say, it's at least a possibility now. Scientists who will, will, will don't know, know the Lord and don't believe the Bible. And I just, just one picture, okay? There's many out there, but this going to be one picture here. These are twins, these are twins from the same father and the same mother. No artificial nothing going on. Just natural childbirth. Look at that. I mean, that, that, that baby on the right is as pale as I am. And the baby on the left looks like Bizan, Alright? And, and maybe we're twins, Bizan. Alright? from the same mother and the same father and if you go and you want to study this just the, 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 the whole genetic stuff and all this and all the chromosomes this is not only possible probably it happens. And Bizon actually showed me a, a couple other pictures that he found we were talking about this a few weeks ago that he found in France and, and just, just amazing because it, it, it can happen it's scientifically possible for this to happen because why? Right here. It tells us. You want to know why? We Just say the scientists all the problem. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Unbelievable. But believable because it's God. And I love our body because we're diverse. We're, we, we look different, don't we? We got people from, I think, five different continents in our body. Which is amazing to do that. And people look different. But we all come from one. And this, this, was, this also was an affront to what they believed at the time because they believed everybody outside of Athens was less than them. They were barbarians. They weren't made the same way they were. They the had the big brains. These other people were pea brains. No, 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 no. Not with God. And then it goes on and says, having determined their appointed times and their boundaries of their habitation, that God said, okay, you'll live here, and 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 you'll you'll live here, and you're going to stay there. And then I'm going to let you do this and this and this and this, because I'm in control again. But why? Because he's purposeful. There was a purpose in all this. What's the purpose in all this? Well, look at verse 27. That or so that. Okay? So, he, in this, he, he did this. He's purposeful. He does these things for a purpose so that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are his children. Being the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art, by, by the art and thought of man. God did all of this to push man to seek him. And, and I love this. It says, For in him we live and we move and we exist. And, 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 and even some of your own poets have acknowledged this. Now he's not giving that the same authority as scripture. They're just, the poets are just basically uh, re- re- re-quoting what the Bible already says. People just look and say, yeah, This is evident. Everybody can see that. Even their own poets, if you think they're the ones that have the authority. Being then children of God, we ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. He's not far from each of us. Here's what he's saying. I love this. He's right there. How are you missing him? I mean, he's right. You're so smart. How can you miss God who's right in front of you, the God I'm speaking about? And I would maybe call out to some of you here this morning. Who may be like these philosophers? Oh, that God, that resurrection stuff. I mean, I wish this guy would be quiet. I got a nice ham waiting at home. Well, he created your ham, too. And you got to give thanks to not a farmer, ultimately, but the God of all creation who made that ham. He's standing right in front of your face. He says, I'm right here. Do not miss me. Don't miss me. And I'm greater than you can ever imagine. Open your eyes. And realize that all that we have comes from one God. Verse 29 points out the folly of worshiping gods. All right. It's it's, it's an insult to man who is created in the image of God. When we put other things before God, hold on, let me go go ahead. Well, I don't do that. I don't have an idol in my home. Do you? Maybe not one like these. But anything that we place more important than God, that's an idol. That is an idol in our lives. And we all struggle with that. We worship other things above and beyond God. He points out that it's a folly. It's an insult to, to, the, to, 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 to who man and who man was created to be. And it's an insult ultimately to God who created us in his image. To, to think you could make God, God out of a, a silver or gold or stone. Then verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance. Alright, here's Paul's conclusion. However, in overlooks the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people every way, sh- everywhere should repent. 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 I-, I don't know why people have a hard per- time with this word. And here's what I mean. People in the body of Christ, you no, know, we-, we should never tell somebody to repent. Are you kidding me? That's what Paul says. To Repent. Now, I understand there's extremes. What well, you need to do see 17 acts of good works before God will um, accept you. That's not what this word means. But it also just doesn't mean a change of mind. I want to make sure of that. It's part of the definition. Maybe it's just a change of mind. Well, and it is. So I'm thinking this about God. Oh, my goodness. He's the true God of all the earth. He created all these things. He made us all from one man. He set His boundaries in place. I believe that. There's one, I've changed my mind about that now. Okay, what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm going to keep worshiping these other 30,000 gods. You haven't repented. There's no repentance there. There's no true biblical repentance. Because true biblical repentance if your mind has really been changed, which also has to do with your heart, will turn from those 30,000 idols and trust the one and true living God through Jesus Christ. Repentance. And when that happens, it will change your life forever. He calls them to repent from those idols. Why? Verse 31, Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Why should they repent, turn from all this idol worship and trusting in everything but the one true God? It's because there's judgment coming. And the God that's going to bring judgment is a man who is God who rose again happy resurrection day and, and, and this whole thing about judgment his resurrection gives him the right to judge because he is God and he's been right where we are the Bible tells us over and over again he's suffered as we have he's been tempted as we have but he didn't fall like we do and he overcame sin and death and was raised again to overcome sin for us so we might have life, and he will be the one one day that will do the judging. Well, notice the response to paul 's message and call to repent look verse thirty two through thirty four Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, "We shall hear you again <laughs> concerning this." So Paul went out of the midst, but some men joined him and believed among, all, among whom also were Dionysus the ergebite a robocite, a rab- uh, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. First, notice there's different responses. Are we surprised if we've been in the book of Acts? It says, first of all, they, they sneered at him. Oh, this, res- this guy is an idiot. Do he you think he's going to buy that? And they sneered at him. Right? Others say, we'll hear you again concerning this. Those are the people when you ask to do something, they say maybe, but they really mean no. You know, they get the, you're going to man camp? Maybe. You're not going to man camp. All right? <laughs> That's a little plug there for man camp, right? The people who say maybe, that means no. And that's what they're saying, because guess what happens? Paul leaves, and they won't ever hear him again. It's yes or no. And at least some people were honest to say no. Yes or no. Right? And he went out from among their midst. He, and been, some people believed, among whom was Dionysus, the Arabite, the Arabite, or uh, Ar- uh, Ar- uh, uh, Ar- right? who was part of uh, all right? The Aeropagus, right? He was one of these wise men. He was sitting on this council, and he believed. And also, a woman named Demarius. There were some who believed. All of a sudden, God broke through. And I love to use it, think about what God said to, to Nicodemus when he gave this illustration about being born again. You know, the wind blows... But you don't see it. When you see the effects of it. But it blows. And later on in John. The wind blew. In Nicodemus' life. And it opened his heart to the gospel. And he was born again. And the wind. Which they couldn't see. They couldn't acknowledge. They didn't know who he was. What this was that was going to change them. Or what Paul was talking about. The wind blew. The Holy Spirit blew. And opened their heart. To trust in the gospel. Well, so what? So what about all this here uh, in Acts 17? A few things. First of all, the the title of the message is When when to Preach the Gospel. Number one, preach the gospel in every context. Every context. Preach the resurrection. I'm going to say this to be specific. Preach the resurrection in every context. Do not leave that out or there is no gospel. Second, preach the resurrection to every person there's people that, that, that these people are smart some of them weren't there'd be people uh, that maybe came along with Paul other people they're, they're, he's, in the, he's in the synagogue he's on the streets he's with the philosophers he's preaching the resurrection to every person his message never changed thirdly preach the resurrection as the only hope the only hope to overcome sin and if you're here this morning on this resurrection day you can't bring God a gift because he's the giver he's given his son the creator who is sovereign is the ultimate giver he gave his son to die in your place so your sins might be forgiven and then he rose him again because he's purposeful he will fulfill his purpose on this, in this world to bring people from every tribe tongue and nation to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that they may have life and worship the one true God who is not unknown he has made himself known my prayer is, you would repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this uh, record of Paul's interaction with these philosophers, the the thinkers of the day, Lord. And we have many people who are thinkers of the day today. And Lord, we pray, uh, Lord, whether people are thinkers or not, whether they are at high position or a low position, whether they have a lot or have nothing, Lord, we pray that you would do a work in all the lives, the lives of all people and bring about new life because of the resurrection of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.